If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, I think the scriptures will come up on the screen. We're in Acts chapter 12. At times I'll refer to the whole chapter, but the section that we get to focus on uh, begins in partway through verse 19 about Herod's death. So Acts chapter 12, verse 19 and a bit. says this. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would seem this morning that you both want to challenge us and to encourage us. And I pray, O oh God, that as we spend time looking at your word together, that both of these things would happen. Forgive us, O oh God, when we want the encouragement and we try to avoid the challenge. Forgive us, O oh God, if we present the challenge but don't bring the encouragement. Uh, we know, Lord, because of our own hearts that we need you and your word to move powerfully amongst us for the glory of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that the result would be what we see in the final verse here, that the word of God would continue to spread and to flourish. I pray, O oh God, that your word would spread and flourish through and in my heart and in my life every day that I breathe on this planet. And I pray, O oh God, that the word of God would spread and flourish through this church for the glory of Jesus, where we as a church need challenge and encouragement. Help us embrace both of them, Lord, for the glory of Jesus. We're not interested in human glory. We're not interested in the glory of a particular movement or a particular label. We want Jesus to be glorified. And that will both hurt us and it will encourage us. But it will be good. I pray, O oh God, that the word of God might spread and flourish again in the United Kingdom. A nation that in times past has sought to honour your word and respect your word. Not that everyone was a believer in times past, but it kind of had a respected place. It's not where it is right now. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, O oh God, that a time would come again 
when the powerful, dangerous, life-giving Word of God would spread and flourish in the United Kingdom, not because we're better, not because we're great, but because you are. And so, Father, I pray, if this nation needs to receive more Africans who believe the Word of God, Lord, I pray, send more Africans. Lord, if the Word of God needs, if this nation needs to receive more Chinese, zealous, white-hot believers in Jesus, Lord, I pray you'd send more Chinese, zealous, white-hot believers here. I pray for us, Lord, in humility and in faith, make us white-hot, zealous believers in Jesus. Amen. Just before we go any further, um, we've, we've been really encouraged as a church in an unusual way. Uh, there are a few people who, for different reasons, have the privilege of visiting lots of different churches. And so we had that recently by, by virtue of a guy who came because we, we asked him to take some video footage for a future website. And he had this great phrase um, that he, he said afterwards when he came to the Jubilee Centre and he handed over this massive SD card with all the footage on it. He said, I've been to lots of churches. There's something different about you guys. You have the best post-meeting retention rate I've ever seen. I, I never knew we had one of those. But apparently, apparently we have a post-meeting retention rate that's really, really good. So, well, I think that means, I seriously, I think that means that we get what it is to be family together, to be brothers and sisters. And actually, we don't think of that as post-meeting. We just think of that as meeting. We get to be together, don't we? And have a tea and a coffee. I also wanted to say we had the chance today to welcome in lots of new members. We haven't quite had a chance to welcome in someone who, uh, into membership uh, who's only just been with us for a couple of months uh, before they returned to Belgium. And uh, so I just wanted to say, uh, because this is Nerland's last Sunday with us, it's been wonderful to have you, Nerland. Give us a wave. Why not? Thank you, Nerland. <laughs> Uh, and this is just an opportunity to say, Nolan, it has been such an encouragement to have you amongst us and to see God's work through you being amongst us. And I know that you've been encouraged greatly by being uh, with us as well. And so I know you're around maybe for a few more days, but just we pray God's blessing up on your life and his plans for you in the future. So we're coming to this passage, and there is something, and maybe this should happen more often, where the word, reading the word of God is both really challenging and really encouraging. That's, I wasn't planning to pray, but I thought I was going to start there because I've been undone already. It, there's something about God's word which cuts us to the heart, undoes us, it's dangerous to spend time with, there are things in God's Word that, that can and should distress us and get under our skin. And if that isn't happening, perhaps we're also not being powerfully encouraged, that the two things go together. I'm going to show you today just a few things from this passage which are, are quite, I think, are quite disturbing, and I'll maybe reference a few other things as well. But if we do pay attention, they, they do become a powerful encouragement. I mean, the, the book of Acts is this wonderful, powerful encouragement. We've been looking, well, if you cast your minds back to Acts chapter 1 uh, and verse 8, where uh, those original disciples, apostles, were, were with the risen Jesus, and before Jesus ascends, when he gives them, I guess this is a, another version of the Great Commission, but it's, a, it's stated as a, as a promise, uh, not just an instruction, uh, in, verse, in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. And that's what the early church were doing. They were aware. They, they were living, breathing evidence of the, the life-transforming effect of a risen Savior. His power to forgive, his power to redeem, his power to make us, make someone who totally corrupt and transform them completely into his purposes, fit them for heaven and use them powerfully in the meantime. So the church received that power and then we see kind of these different, uh, different kind of waves of, of, of amazing witnessing progress happening. It happens in Jerusalem to start with. Um, and then we've seen in the last few chapters, maybe even more encouragement than challenge. Or it, things are going quite well. In Samaria, just loads of people become believers. I mean, it's a little bit awkward with Simon the Sorcerer at one point, but loads of people come to faith. The Ethiopian eunuch kind of comes to faith, this wonderful moment where he gets baptized straight away. Uh, there are times when someone is raised from the dead because they're such a powerful encouragement to the church. Someone else powerfully healed. The, 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 the man who's been trying to kill and persecute Christians is stopped on the road to Damascus and becomes one himself. And I mean, that might have been a bit tricky for Ananias, who is told by God, go and speak to Saul, what that guy who's been trying to kill us. Yes, that man, go, and, go to him and pray for him. So there are these nervous, dicey moments for the people of God, but it's kind of possible to just think, wow. I mean, basically, the, the, the balance of, of, of kind of powerful progress to opposition seems to be tipped very much in the church's favor. The, there's some uh, people go to Antioch, and it says uh, in chapter 11, the hand of the Lord was with them. And what's the evidence of that? Loads of people, Jews and Greeks, coming to faith. Uh, Barnabas turns up, son of encouragement, just sees the evidence of the grace of God, encourages them loads more. Keep going. Loads more people come to faith. He goes and gets Saul, who by now has, has kind of done a huge amount of theological work in the background, and now he comes and he teaches. And there's this little hint of opposition. The people start calling the believers Christians. It's only three times in the New Testament we're called Christians, and that's one of them. So maybe this little bit of ridicule, this little bit of, of opposition, mockery. Um, but other than that, just in, in, incredible signs of progress. And then you kind of like bang into chapter 12. And we can focus on the miracle that Peter's brought out of prison. And that is powerfully encouraging. But let's just see how disturbing chapter 12 is. This is just a brief recap from what we looked at last week. Under the banner, what's so disturbing, number one, is that Herod is king. This is Herod, he's Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of the Herod that declared that all boys under two born in Bethlehem should be killed to try and get rid of this new king that has just been born that the Magi spoke of. His grandson is ruler. A smooth talker, political savvy operator let's see some of the things that should rightly disturb us it was about this time in chapter one uh, chapter 12 verse 1 that king herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them let's move on to verse 2 he had james the brother of john put to death with the sword one of the twelve it's a long time. You can cast your mind back to chapter 8 when Stephen was stoned. Maybe 8 to 10 years have passed since that point. And the people of God might have thought, well, that's the, the kind of crazy kind of stuff that happened in the early days. Now we're, pro, now we're progressing. Now we're seeing the gospel spread. Surely that kind of thing won't happen anymore. God is with us. The Lord's hand is with us. No, James was killed with the sword. That's what Herod had the power to do. And when he saw this, met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So as nasty a tyrant as Herod was, a lot of people living in Jerusalem thought that he did the right thing when he killed James. It met with approval. What else should I do? 
I know, I'll go and arrest Peter as well. So when Peter, when he, when he comes to his senses and he's come out of the prison gates and the chains have fallen off him and he realised it wasn't a dream, says in verse 11, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would come about. Ah, oh, he got away. I was, I was hoping for a good execution. I was hoping we'd get him, that, that troubler. So we delight that he's released from prison. The prayers of the church are answered. What, what were the church praying? Because when Peter knocked at the door, Rhoda's excited, and maybe she gets it, and maybe that's what she's been praying for. Maybe she was praying, Lord, let there be a knock at the door in the next little while. This, is, this isn't in the text, forgive me. You know, just, just, I'm just pondering, what were they praying? You can do that, Lord. There's nothing to stop your power. What were the rest praying? Were the rest praying that? They might have been. They might have been praying... Lord God, he goes on trial tomorrow. Jesus was arrested in the night and he was killed the next day. Help Peter stay strong. Maybe they were praying that and that would be a good thing to pray. Maybe they were praying, just bring him out. But Herod is such a nasty man and he's so powerful it's wonderful, isn't it? The church's reflex is to gather together and pray. But as they pray, they're wrestling with their own doubts and they're losing that match. So there's a knock at the door. And Peter comes. It's amazing. Can you imagine that moment? What happens next? Peter leaves that place. So Rhoda, you got your hug on the door. Your prayer was answered and he's had to move on. It's not easy to be the church. It's not easy to be the people of God. It's not always easy sometimes to have your prayers answered. We're glad. We're sad. This is amazing. It's, just, it's awkward. And then it gets a bit more disturbing. There's no small commotion. Verse 19 after Herod had a thorough search made for him and, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. I mean, even before we get to the next bit, what, what did that cross-examination look like? How many guards are there? It says that, that Peter was handed over to four squads of four soldiers each. Sixteen men are being cross-examined. And when you see how Jesus was cross-examined by the Romans, we could imagine... Possibly something similar is happening. He cross-examined. We're only told that the, the order was given, but maybe we could assume that it actually happened fairly soon afterwards and ordered those 16 men be killed and executed. And God, in his sovereignty, has allowed all of that to happen. That is a bit disturbing. And these are real events, not told for effect. So why, why are we told about what happens next? What did Luke want God's people to get hold of when he first wrote this, wrote this book? What does God want us to get hold of right now? Sometimes God's church is treated like that. The chains are real. The prison was real. The soldiers were real. The prayer meeting was real. The answers to prayer were real. 
But I think what we're shown here then, at the end of chapter 12, is a necessary kind of postscript to that little story. God, I think this is the encouragement for Christians who are in that kind of situation. God can and will dethrone real tyrants who are against his church. And the real God, seated on the real throne, is, this is profoundly encouraging if you think about it, is powerfully at work even when the church is doubting. Even when the church is earnestly praying, but intimidated. God is powerfully at work. So we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to... Look what the church does. The church prays. Doesn't start kind of waving banners outside of the palace. Who knows what other things the church was doing, but Paul's... uh, Luke's focus is to say, look, this is how you cope. This is how you see God powerfully at work. You pray. Let's look at what Peter says. The Peter who experienced this chapter would go on to write 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Mentioning a few different situations, he concludes with this. If this is so then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on a day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. What does God know how to do? He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Herod looks like he's in control. Herod looks like he's powerful. Herod looks like he can decide exactly what happens next. But his days are numbered. And at God's appointed time, he experiences his judgment and is taken out of the picture entirely. Maybe that's an encouragement to tuck away for now. But let's just remember it when we, when we sing about chains and we, we, we remark at prison doors being opened and we give thanks for that because of the, the kind of spiritual image. It reminds us that we were once in a prison, we were chained up by our sin and our condemnation. And yes, those prison doors have been flung wide, but let's, let's remember that God knows how to actually do that when and where and when the church is a despised minority where people will approve of Christians being arrested and might even approve of Christians being killed. This is the God we trust. The God who knows how to dethrone evil powers in his timing. Actually, that makes us a people who have peace in our hearts We're not trying to think, how can we get back at those in power? How how, how can we go and assassinate a tyrant? We are a people of faith who leave things in the Lord's hands and continue to trust him. Disturbing, but it gets encouraging. The second thing that disturbs me, it's not just that Herod is king, but it's how, or perhaps why, Herod dies. Far apart from what we make of the role of the worms, like the mind, like what have you eaten, mate? I mean, what has happened here? Um, but there was a real occasion. This is, this is not telling us some Christian myth, made-up story. Herod was in Caesarea in AD 44 at a big event. And he went to that big event, some other historians inform us, wearing a silver garment that kind of shone 
So he sat on his throne before all the people and, and his clothes are, are shining. And we see how other people interact with Herod knowing that he's a powerful man. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they, they, they pick an argument. They protest about something. And so they're not getting on. But then it's kind of dawning on this kind of big population nearby but just outside Israel. Hang on a minute. If we, if we stick to our guns here, if we keep fighting this fight, he could just take all of our food away. He could interrupt our food supply. How are we going to, how are we going to survive? And so they find a way uh, on this particular occasion, knowing that Herod had come north, to plead for terms. They find the personal assistant. He intercedes for them. And so they, they're kind of greatly relieved. We're going to survive. He's not going to wipe us out. He's not going to starve us. And, and so with this, and perhaps with his sh clothes shining brightly, and perhaps with some strange expression of their relief, when Herod gave his public address to the people, verse 22, they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Later chapters will show us the right response when that happens. So when there are people um, with Paul and his companions who are, are so enamoured by what they've seen, they start to call um, Paul and Barnabas gods. And what, what, what do they do? I'm sorry, it's just stealing someone else's thunder in a few weeks' time. Um, they run out. I think they, they, they rip their clothes. Immediately, they're saying, don't do that. And, and they just about managed to prevent the people from making a sacrifice to them as though they're a god. I mean, it just sounds utterly bonkers. But Herod receives it. They say, this is not the voice of, of a man, this is the voice of God. And he just stays there, receiving it. You think, idiots. I'll tell you why it disturbs me a bit more. I can't remember where I was. It might have been like a railway platform. You know, when you kind of like come up the stairs to kind of come onto the platform and you're kind of a bit disorientated, you're looking for where to go. Um, and in such places, there's kind of adverts at strategic points, not massive billboards, just kind of yay big. I don't even remember what, it, what the poster was advertising. So it can't have been very effective. The idea of an advert is you're supposed to remember uh, what the product or what the service or what the company is. I can't remember. But there was, on this big poster was this slogan. And it kind of took me back because it just thought that's the spirit of the age right there on the poster, on the advert. <clears throat> I am who I say I am. That's weird. Does that, that's, that sound familiar? I am who I say I am. John earlier, when he was encouraging us, kind of just uh, referenced briefly Moses and the, the burning bush, or the bush that wasn't actually burning, but was somehow aflame with light. It was, it was ablaze, but it wasn't being burned up. And within the flames, there's the figure of the, the angel of the Lord, and a voice, the voice of God himself is speaking to Moses with this powerful commission about what's to come next, what does Moses do? What is he, what's he told to do? This is going to take a while because I walk, I've put the wrong shoes on today. Take off your... Well, they were sandals. I don't do those. Take off your sandals because you're on, you're on holy ground. And later on, when Moses says, who shall I say? It's all right, showered recently. Um, who, sh who shall I say has sent me? If you want to, we just turn to this, it's too important. 
lot to go to. Exodus chapter 3 is the God who just keeps revealing more and more of himself through, throughout the history and well, throughout the pages of the scripture. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Giving, giving them an understanding that God's name was I am or Yahweh. And a name so holy that no, no Jew would speak out loud and, and wouldn't even write down in, in its totality. So holy. This is God, and Moses is meeting him. God's got this great commission. Moses, you better take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. I am who I am. Now... So, so God communicating, no one defines me, no one explains me, I have no beginning, Here's the, here is the God of all power, of all holiness, about whom it's right to always affirm everything God does is right. Everything God does is holy. Everything he says. And so he is the one who is all glorious and is completely worthy. And frighteningly, his very name has now become the slogan by which everyone, lots of people, are encouraged to define and identify themselves. Like it could just be on a t-shirt, I am who I am, I am who I say I am, you don't get to define me. All you have to do all the time is affirm me. Because what's right for me is right for me. This, this frightening slogan, written large, throughout Western civilization and more, is a direct affront to the holy, glorious majesty of God who deserves praise and glory and honour and worship in every single situation, even when an apostle is in prison and might not make it out. Even when the execution of 16 people is ordered on account of his miraculous escape, which God has ordained to happen. This is the God that is right to take off our shoes and say, you are, oh God, who you say you are. I'm not going to be the one to define you and decide the bits of you that I like and the bits of you that I don't. The bits that I can palate and the bits that I can't. We either, and we might be those who cringe under the tyranny of some other king, but we might be living in the tyranny of thinking of ourselves as king. It could be easy to draw some comparisons about, about how the self is defined nowadays, how parents might be thinking that they're doing a good thing by leading their, their offspring, before they know the word gender dysphoria, kind of lead their offspring into utter and total confusion. You get to choose, you get to decide, no one can say that you're wrong, Find your own identity, 
and declare that to the world. So you can see how the church of God is in direct conflict with the spirit of our age. If we are those who dare to say, there's only one Lord, there's only, there's only one being who can say of himself, I am who I am. You know, of course there are things about us that we can, we can choose and decide for ourselves. Um, I'm a big fan, or uh, yeah, I think I still am, um, of Eric Clapton. Uh, that ages me because it shows that I'm the child not of my own time, but of the time before that. Okay? And, uh, and when he was breaking onto the scene in the, uh, the, the British blues rock revival of the mid to late 1960s, I don't know, um, uh, graffiti would start to appear probably in the gents of you know, the local uh, music venue claiming that Clapton is God. Um, that's like a, that's dangerous, isn't it? Uh, we, get, we all get tested by the praise that people give us. We can think we get tested by trials and suffering. I think we get tested when people say good of us and people graffiti that. That is testing our hearts like nothing else. So his fans are claiming that he's God. I really don't think so. I think you know, God could do more than just kind of overdrive a 12-bar blues. I mean, even I can have a go at that. It's not that difficult. As much. Anyway, I'll move on because that's an awesome sidetrack. Um, but we're, we're kind of, we're all, uh, we're all encouraged to deify ourselves, to put ourselves on the throne. And other people are fine and they're right if they affirm me in everything that I choose. The church has to say, no, that's not good. We can become complicit in all sorts of different ways. You could just turn to John chapter 5. See how Jesus speaks to some of the religious people of his time. In John chapter 5, verse 44, or reading from verse 41, Jesus says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I, this is to religious people, seemingly super spiritual. I have come in my Father's name, you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He kind of cuts through all the hypocrisy. This kind of trade in glory. If you compliment me and flatter me, then I'll do the same for you. God looks on the heart. This is encouraging if we agree one of life's great aims is to dethrone myself. It's not to try and work out and calculate ways in which I might get glory or people might say good things about me. That's not, that's not the aim. What is the big aim? What's the big point? of this bundle of cells without his shoes on at the moment. What, what am I here for? What are you here for? If we don't have an answer to that question, it's just a slippery slope into absolute despair. What's the answer? Why are we here? To know God and to glorify him forever. To enjoy God forever. And to by knowing him and by enjoying fellowship with the Almighty, I get to glorify him. I get the message of my life to be, isn't he amazing? Isn't he wonderful? So Herod is an evil king, but his days are numbered. If I allow it to happen, I'm an evil king. So I better dethrone myself. Where is it heading? Jesus is king. And it would be easy at that point just to begin by, isn't Jesus wonderful in a really soft and gentle way? And Jesus is not the same as the evil tyrants. But let's not forget, he is actually the king. And it's right for us to live 
in the fear of the Lord. Rather than just stress, only stress this, I get to be friends. I get to be friends with God. Well, that is true. But the one who is a friend, who's my awesome older brother in the family, if you like, is also the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He created this bundle of cells. He created this sprinkle of atoms. And he is the real king. And there are ways in which I should be terrified of Jesus, as well as enjoy the intimacy of friendship with him and friendship with God from a result. Here's another scripture that was deeply disturbing me this week, but I think is also encouraging. Revelation chapter 1. Could I just have a time check? What's the time? Is it five past ten? Okay, I'll take that. Okay. (laughs) So here is a vision in Revelation chapter 1 of the risen, ascended, ruling Jesus. And it describes how he is walking in these lampstands. It's kind of a picture of more more a temple than a throne room at this point. He's like, uh, he's the high priest walking through these different lampstands, and those different lampstands represent different churches. And his, his, his appearance is described in these terms. When, when John writes in, in chapter 1, verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his friends were like, his, what? his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, all right, Jesus, When I saw him, what's the response to that point? I fell at his feet as though dead. Just consider for a moment what, what comes from the mouth of Jesus. I think this, this passage will pick up two things. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. What else comes? And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. For John, what could be more dangerous than a sharp, double-edged sword? There's there's not like semi-automatic weaponry here. This this is the first century. It's a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. There's rushing waters. What does that convey? I mean, the sound of rushing waters in different contexts can be absolutely petrifying as well, I should probably hasten to add. You're on a ferry, traveling to France. The sound of rushing waters, what is happening here? Uh, But sometimes, I suppose, in that sort of scenario, we might be thinking of something that's really refreshing, this kind of paradise, uh, lagoon maybe with, with waterfall, just What comes from his mouth is for your encouragement, is for your refreshing. And what's also coming from his mouth at the same time is a sharp double-edged sword that might chop something off of you. It might chop something out of your heart. It might pierce, right? We've seen it in the scripture. People who knew so much of the scripture, they hear a message that Peter preaches, what do they say? We're cut to the heart. It's got us. Somehow that's life-giving. I guess a sword can also be used in a different way. If you're knelt down and someone's got a really sharp sword in front of you, that could be petrifying until they take that sword and just tap it on both shoulders. What? This is amazing, amazing privilege. Jesus 
is. It's the lion and the lamb. I've only seen a lion through like multiple fences and, and, and wire. And I've only seen a lion that's never had to catch any food for itself. It's just kind of deposited. And kind of like from that safe distance, kind of like it, it yawns and we go, oh, look at it. But, but, but the real lion kind of comes in with no double fence arrangement. And here's a lion that's never needed to be given any food. It's always caught its own. And I, I, might, I might play dead at that point because something awesome and majestic has just arrived. Jesus is our king. And he is awesome. And he is good. And he is powerful. And we can even say of this king that he has a sword. And he's prepared to use it. And he's glorious. And there's something about coming to him which should feel like dying. Just thinking about those baptisms from a couple of weeks ago. Just so, so wonderful to see people get baptised. Why, why is it that we use a pool? Because you've got to go down first. When someone gets baptised, they're saying to principalities and powers that we can't see and the people in the room, because Jesus is my king now, my old life has died. I needed to die. That old me that wants to be in charge, that old me that wants to be king, that wants to rule, that old me that wants everybody to affirm me, that old me that wants to decide and choose what I think is good and what I think is bad, that old me that is in utter rebellion to God, even if I look like a Pharisee to everyone else, it's like, well, if you know, be impressive like that guy someday with self-righteousness and spiritual exploits and good deeds, that old me needed to die. That life needed to be destroyed. The good news is that this king, this king, who would demonstrate the glorious majesty of his rule by dying on a cross in my place, is the only one with the power not just to kill and destroy something that exists in rebellion to him, but to raise me, a new creation, into a whole new life. That is awesome. Coming to him can feel like dying. I, I, heard, um, I heard a story. I, read, uh, I heard a story recently. American guy, we'll, we'll conclude in a minute. American guy called Randy. This is maybe from... 15 or 20 years ago. But I'm sure, I think Randy's still with us. There was a special event in his hometown. A tent was put up and there were meetings. I guess a church or multiple churches organized it. Don't know the details. One way or another, he goes along to one of their meetings and he gives his life to Jesus. And I think by what he did next is evident that he understood that my old life needs to die completely. And I'm now going to follow Jesus as king. And so do you know what he did? He went and handed himself in to the police. And he said, maybe not in these words, I have done some naughty things. We realised that we freaked out one of our children when they were about four or five, when baptisms happened, and we realised this when it got played out at home in the kitchen later. I won't mention any names, but she was welcomed into membership today. Um, <laughs> we realised that maybe we hadn't explained baptism terribly well. And we wondered why, when everyone clapped at the end, that she'd get upset, like really, really upset. Until she reenacted a church meeting. She welcomed everyone in the name of the Lord. And then later on, she did that moment where someone gives their testimony. I have done naughty things. I must be baptised. And back she went and up she came. So we realised that perhaps she was kind of seeing, sorry, is this all right, sweetheart? Uh, seeing, <laughs> seeing baptism as like some kind of ritual punishment that made us all really happy, which would seem really twisted, wouldn't it? If someone has to say, 
because some often people were kind of sharing our different stories, and some people might say the equivalent of I've done naughty things. Well, this guy, Randy, really had done some naughty things. We've all done naughty things, don't get me wrong. That life ends now, giving my life to Jesus. And so, he, have I said this already? He went and handed himself into the police. And he really had done some naughty things. I don't know what, but I know that he was in a prison cell with a, with a cellmate who tried to kill someone with a hammer. So my guess is, you know, something of equal evil. But he knows Jesus now. And because he knows Jesus, he's gone to prison. What does he do in, G- in prison? He goes, I don't have much time. I don't have loads of time. I, I'm not going to get this time in, in normal life. I was going to spend time getting to know Jesus better. So he decides to fast. Spends time fasting. And something about seeing him fast and pray and know Jesus better and be able to say in fairly simple terms the the reason he had for his hope. Convinced a psychopathic cellmate who tried to kill someone with a hammer to give his life to Jesus as well. Life is weird. It's not easy being a Christian. We might end up in prison. But Jesus is our king. And we want his glory. And that's what matters most. Not only does it matter the most, but it is the, somehow it's the best kind of life to lead. Whatever the consequences, we will see God pull through for a church that is massively despised in its own culture. We will have stories of God answering prayer that could be written down and have people in hundreds of years going, wow, God came through for them. We don't know what's going to happen. But let's not pretend God has called us his subjects just for a comfortable, easy life. We have that in eternity and we will be there one day. For now, buckle up, worship Jesus, dethrone your pride, exalt him, and work out how to give a reason for the hope that you have.